open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Last week in our passage, we saw the 72 being sent out on a mission. And we looked at refocusing on the mission after we went through a hefty chapter uh, in chapter 9. Well, this morning, as, as A.J. read here, our passage is those 72 returning from their mission. And we will see Jesus refocus the 72 on the joy of their salvation. And so we too, in line of this passage, and my hope for myself, for all of us, is that we will refocus on the joy of our salvation. And I know for some of us, this may just be a continuation of the week. That it's been, it's been a good week, we're looking forward to maybe a Super Bowl party or whatever's going on today, and this is just going to be a continuation. But for other, others of us, this refocusing is very needed. That we're being maybe distracted by different priorities or other stuff is going on, and we need to be refocused. And I'm sure for others of us, we're in desperate need of this. We're in desperate need to be refocused on the joy of our salvation. Maybe, maybe you're overcome by stress and anxiety and worry about some personal situation or just the state of our nation. Or maybe you are, are depressed and discouraged about a personal situation of finances or a strained relationship. Um, or maybe you're coming off a fresh sin, a fresh failure, where the wound is still open, it's bare, it's naked, and it's full of guilt and shame and has yet to be covered by grace and forgiveness. Wherever you are, I pray that you consider with me our passage in refocusing on the joy of our salvation in Christ. And so we're looking at Luke chapter 10, the return of the 72. And we see in this first few verses is this command from Christ. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in your salvation. Verse 17. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold. I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And so the 72 return, and just a really quick reminder of the context, uh, Jesus sent out the 72 in our last passage last week. It's a specific group for a specific time with some specific instructions for that specific time. We've seen that some of them expire, if you will, where Jesus uh, changes some of the instructions, such as what they take with them on this mission. But we see that there's, all the, there's principles we could take from that for our mission today uh, that Christ has given the church, the, the Great Commission. But Luke notes that when they return, they return with joy. They return with joy. In chapter 9, the last few months, weeks, We've seen the cost of following Christ, a cost of dying to self, dying, denying ourselves, dying to our dreams, denying our priorities, all for Christ. And it's a, it's a hefty cost. But we see here that it comes with joy. True joy only comes with following Christ. It's, it's costly. It is costly to us, but that's where true joy is. And so we see the 72 return with joy. I mean, living for yourself, it promises happiness does it not it promises hey just get the next thing that next thing you experience you get this then you'll finally be happy and if if there even is happiness it's very short-lived and it quickly turns into disappointment 
But we see that following Christ is costly, but that's where true joy is. And so the 72 returned with joy, and it seems that the mission was successful. Because he had to say, even the demons are subject to us in Christ's name. And so before Jesus refocuses the 72 on the joy of their salvation, he does say a few things about these great works. In fact, he connects them to the fall of Satan. Look at this. He says, I saw, so this is what they said. Hey, even the, the demons are subject to us in your name. And then he right away says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And often in the, the New Testament, the fall of Satan is associated with usually two things. The cross, the crucifixion, and the, the return of Christ. Very often, uh, we see this in John 12, John 16, Colossians 2, Revelations 12, uh, that it's connected with these two events. But here, Luke connects it to almost a sequence of events. The, the, the grammar of this, the word here for, for saw, it signifies that it's portraying the defeat of Satan in a series of events. So what does that mean? These exorcisms is evidence and shows the defeat of Satan. The Christ-empowered disciples in the ministry, it shows the defeat of Satan. That Satan's kingdom is being plundered one soul at a time. It's coming. It's being plundered in these, these sequences, these events. And then Jesus says a statement. If you're looking at the text, he says a statement that can be ripped out of context and made to say some crazy things, right? Are you reading, are you reading the, the verse? So many can rip that out, and you can just guess the things that people can say, yep, Keith is laughing, yep, people can really rip this apart. And so I want to take just a few minutes looking at this verse, because it's important that we know what we believe, why we believe, and that we can explain, no, this is what the pastor says, and not this crazy stuff that then gets turned against Christianity as a Christianity is a joke. It is vital we know this for the sake of our own faith, our own walk with Christ, for our family, for our friends and our church family. And as hopefully I've been saying enough, context is absolutely vital to understand any part of Scripture. And so look at this next words that Jesus says. He says, I saw Satan fall uh, from heaven like lightning. And then he says, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Again, you hear that, you're like, yep, I can see how people can just go in all directions with this. Let's consider this. The immediate context first. Jesus is speaking specifically to these 72. Remember, they are on a specific mission that's temporary that Jesus changes later with some specific instructions. And so potentially, potential is that this word that Jesus is saying, that I've given you this kind of authority, is only specific to these 72 for maybe a specific time. Uh, uh, evidence of this may be seen uh, with another guy who was in a specific group, that being the Apostle Paul in Romans 28. If you remember, he's on an island, and he gets bitten by a, a viper. And all the natives are like, he's dead. He's going to die. We know that, that viper is lethal. He's dead, and he doesn't die. And so we see that Paul, the apostle, was protected. And so I say that, saying that this possibly, these words that Jesus is saying, within the context, he's speaking to the 72 who are on a specific mission, who are a specific group, this words may be just directed towards them. Okay? Let me throw in another wrinkle, just to make things interesting. 
some may say, what about Mark 16? We see Jesus say things very similar in Mark 16 to all Christians. So if you have your Bible, turn to Mark 16. Mark 16, verse 17. And I'm taking time because this is important that we understand this. Mark 16, verse 17. It reads, and these signs, Jesus speaking, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. And then here, very similar to what we're just hearing in Luke 10, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. And then some will say, hey, here it, it perfectly connects. They hear Luke 10, must connect, must mean to all Christians, and we can literally start drinking coolants. And we'll survive, right? And I, I don't mean to make light of that, but that's, if you take that, that's what that would mean then. But here's the wrinkle, and I do not have time. We could take the next four hours, if that sounds good with you, but we do not have the time to give uh, the time that this requires to really speak on this. But let me just try to, in, in concise words, um, explain this. Remember how we have our Bible today. We do not have the original manuscripts that literally Paul wrote on or that Matthew wrote on or Mark or John. We do not have those. But we do have thousands, thousands of manuscripts, copies of this. Some copies, many of them, that are written within decades of the original writing during the lives of eyewitnesses of the events that are written about so that they could validate if it was true or not. Okay? Now these copies that we have there are far more copies than any other ancient document in history. They are far more accurate than any other document in ancient history. And they are far more recent to the date of writing than any document in, 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 in ancient history. And I'm emphasizing it because it is incredibly significant how amazing these manuscripts are that we have in the New Testament and the Old Testament and the accuracy and the connection, how close it is to the time of writing. I hope I haven't lost you, but that all being said, the best manuscripts we have do not contain this ending of Mark 16, uh, specifically verses 9 through 20, and, and this is going to connect. And in fact, look at your Bible. Most likely your Bible have some kind of footnote on it or some kind of note explaining this, that, hey, our best manuscripts do not have this section or this certain section. There's also many other reasons why it doesn't seem that this part of Mark is original to Mark, uh, that being... Mark's reintroduction of Mary Magdalene in verse 9, which he already did this in verse 1, the words that Mark uses, and many other things. I say all that to make, it, uh, make us a see, to once again emphasize the absolute significance that we know what we believe and why, and that we just don't just fly by this, because this is vital that we understand these things of God's Word. And so that we know that the context here in the passage of Luke 10, uh, and we understand that it's directed not to all Christians and not to be misled by if someone connects it to Mark 16. Uh, some people hate when I say this, but does that make sense? Okay, praise God. Now let me take this route, and I think this will be beneficial to you. So Luke 10 could be specifically directed to the 72 uh, for their specific mission. I'm going to suggest to you 
That this isn't specific language, but it's symbolic language that Jesus is saying here. So that's what I'm going to suggest. And so I'm going to break this down quick because I think it's important. These three statements that Jesus says. He says, one, I've given you authority. Two, he says, to tread on serpents, scorpions, and over all the part of the enemy. And three, and nothing shall hurt you. So let's consider this, and this is not going to be too long. The first statement, he says, uh, I have given you authority. Or I will give you authority. And does this not sound familiar? The Great Commission, Matthew twenty eighteen. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Jesus has done it. It is finished. Jesus is victoria, victorious. Now, in light of his victory, go. In the same way, we see Jesus saying, uh, this authority I give to you. And so I'm saying that's, I, I'm suggesting that's symbolic, this authority that Jesus has. And with that authority that he has, we go. The second statement he says, which is more of the trickier one, to tread on serpents and scorpions and the enemy. Right? That sounds very interesting. I'm going to suggest to you that this isn't speaking literally of animals, but of what they uh, symbolize. That being evil forces. Satan, first time we see him he, he, in Scripture, he's what? A, a serpent, right? And in Genesis 3, when God is pronouncing the consequences of the fall of man of sin, while he's speaking to the serpent, he says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, being Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so in that statement, it is, uh, what, I, I forget the word, pro-evangelium, being this is the first mention of the gospel we see in Scripture, Genesis 3.15. We hear of the, the, the offspring of Eve, Jesus, that he's coming, whose heel Satan will bruise. And we see a picture of the crucifixion, a very uh, uh, cloudy picture, but we hear this this. this uh, I'm not I'm sure what the word is. I'm trying to look for the literary term. I don't know what the word is. But we hear it's coming. The crucifixion coming. And then we see that, but Jesus will give the death blow. He will bruise his head. And so you have this authority that Jesus is giving to the disciples to tread on serpents and scorpions, which I suggest represent these evil forces. And it's from this finished work of Jesus Christ and his authority that we, within the context, can plunder Satan's kingdom by proclaiming the truth. And it's exactly what we see in Romans uh, chapter 16, where Paul writes towards the end, he says, the God of peace will soon crush uh, Satan, and we hear, we hear the echoes of Genesis 3, under your feet. And he's referring to the believers in Rome. Yes, we see in Genesis 3 that Jesus will crush his head as we've seen on the cross, but that continues. We can be a part of that. We are a part of that, as, as, as Paul says in Romans. And so to summarize that, Jesus says, I've given you authority to tread over serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy. And so we, I, I'm suggesting that this is proclaiming that. Jesus has finished it. He has the authority. All authority has been given to him. Therefore, go. I've given you this authority because you have power over the enemy because of what Jesus has done. Jesus, a God will crush the head of Satan through you as you go. Does that make sense? It's a glorious picture. And then right before I get to that third statement, just to, to finish it off, let me make a quick note here. Like last week, do you hear the battle language here? It's a war that we're in. 
the, to tread on, to crush the head. This battle language. Paul writes in Ephesians, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We wrestle. This isn't skipping down the, the road, but we wrestle. And we're in a battle each day. And Jesus says, we are on the offensive. If you remember back when, when Peter confesses uh, Christ as Lord, in Matthew, he adds that Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, and that be, being Peter's confession of Jesus as Christ, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell, which is defensive, gates are defending, will not prevail against the church that Jesus is building. It's coming. We're on the offensive. We are going out. Nothing will stop us. Jesus will build his church. Uh, there will be dark times, no question. We see it in history. But it will not prevail against Jesus building his church. And so we hear this war language. And we see it, like I, I said last week, we see it all through the New Testament. This isn't skipping down the block. This is war language. And how do we fight this war? And this is everywhere. We read this in Second Corinthians. Uh, Paul says in chapter 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience with your, when your obedience is complete. And so what is this weapon that we have? We're not fighting flesh and blood. The weapon is the truth of Christ, the Word of God. Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit, as Paul calls uh, the Word of God. It is the truth that sets us free. It is the truth that saves. It is the truth that sanctifies, that edifies, that convicts. It's the, the sword of the Spirit. And so the truth of the Son of God will conquer, and we go out to proclaim it. Are you following with me? And, and there's, there's, there's casualties, and there's injuries in war, right? But then that third statement, Jesus says, he says, nothing shall hurt you. Nothing shall hurt you. And again, within the context, he isn't referring to you're never going to die, you're never going to get any kind of injuries. That's not what it's referring to. But we take within the account of all of Scripture, he means nothing can hurt you spiritually. You are secure in Christ, Christian. You are in God's hand, the Father, and you're in God the Son's hand. Nothing can hurt you. And on top of this, it reassures us that everything that you're going through right now will be worked out ultimately for your good. It will be. No trial or hardship, no disease or death, no temptation or attack has slipped by God's gaze without notice. None have ever. Everything comes by His order and decree. God is completely sovereign. As, as one uh, pastor in church history has said, this rather is the solace of the faithful in their adversity that everything which they endure is by the ordination and command of God that they are under His hand. God is in complete control. Whatever you're going through, He's in complete control. You can trust Him. So knowing what we believe and why is vital and knowing the context is very important. 
And so Jesus, he talks about these great works, right? And then he refocuses the 72 after these mighty things they've seen. He refocuses them on the joy of their salvation. Verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, being these great works that Jesus had just talked about, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And in other places in Scripture, like Revelation 3, 20, uh, Daniel chapter 12, Philippians 4, we understand that this is referring to the book of life. Your name is written in the book of life. God has secured your salvation. Your name is written in the book of life. And Jesus says, rejoice. Rejoice in this. And this command is uh, specifically continuous. Always be rejoicing, no matter how long you've been a Christian. No matter uh, if you can't remember a time you weren't a Christian because you've been trusting in Christ since you were a kid. The command is the same. Continue to rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Continue to rejoice in your salvation. And look, it's not just a number. Yep, Jesus has... Five billion people written in the name of the book of life. But your name is written. It's individual. It's specific. As Paul writes, uh, when you read a lot in Scripture, when it says you, it's almost always plural. We usually I say, oh, it's taken to me. It's very plural. But one significant time that Paul makes it very individual is in Galatians 2. If you remember back in our study of Galatians. Galatians 2, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And he gets very personal, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so you, Christian, and I today, we're commanded to rejoice. Rejoice because your name is written in heaven. Rejoice because you are forgiven. Rejoice because you've been redeemed, adopted, justified, foreknown, elected, predestined, chosen, called, reconciled, brought near given access to God, you've been born again, accepted, baptized in the Spirit, sealed with the Spirit, saved, sanctified, delivered. You have God's favor for all eternity. You have peace with God. You have the Spirit of God. You are children of God. You're co-heirs with Christ. You are completely righteous. You are a new creation. And in the coming ages, you are looking forward to, whether you feel like it or not, you are looking forward to, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And that's just a fraction of, of what we have in Christ. So rejoice in your salvation. Now before we move on, I could not help, if looking at this passage, I could not help but hear and compare it to Matthew 7. If you look at the passage, if you remember the, in Matthew 7, where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so we see both here in Luke 10, the disciples are rejoicing in these works that they were doing. And then in this passage in Matthew 7, Jesus refers to people who are pointing to what they're doing, their works. But rather, Jesus with the disciples says, hey, don't rejoice about that, but rejoice their names is written in heaven. And to these others in Matthew 7, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me. Do not put your hope in what you're doing, no matter how effective or how Christian it looks. 
Be certain and assured that your faith and hope is in Jesus Christ. And so, Christian, you can relax, you can rest, and you can rejoice in your salvation. There may be many distractions and anxieties and worries and even good things distracting you from this. But Jesus says, rejoice. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And not only that, but continuing in our passage, you can rejoice all the more that your salvation is all of God's grace. Look at me, verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced. So the disciples were just rejoicing, and now we see Jesus. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So right off the bat, notice our triune God. You have Jesus, the Son of God, rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, thanking God the Father, right? The triune God, the Godhead. You see them all in this passage. We have one God and three distinct persons. One essence, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And we see that right here. And Jesus begins thanking God the Father. And he refers to God the Father as the Lord of heaven and earth. And indeed, he is Lord. He is sovereign. He's sovereign over Satan. He's sovereign over the harvest, as we saw last week. He's sovereign over the mighty works that he does in and through us. And he's sovereign over salvation. I mean, we, we saw this in the mission of the 72. Jesus says, don't take these things with you, but depend on God who will provide through these people. And he says, pray for God to send out laborers. It's all dependent on God because God is sovereign. Jesus says, the kingdom of God, to those who reject the message, the kingdom is near. It's still coming. Regardless of your actions, God is still bringing the kingdom. And then God, Jesus is able to say that judgment is sure on those who reject the truth. Why? Because God is sovereign. He's going to bring the judgment. So we hear God's sovereignty in this. And look at what Jesus thanks the Father for. Look at this. Jesus thanks God the Father that he has hidden, he has hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to children. What are these things? They are the things that are necessary for salvation. Everything about Jesus, his deity, his messiahship, his gospel, his kingdom. But imagine that. Jesus is literally thanking God the Father for hiding them from certain people. And this isn't that new to us. If you remember back in Luke 8, this is verse 10, Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, To you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now, before we get into this contrast between the wise and understanding and the little children, let us first look at the contrast between the, uh, God hiding and then God revealing. So we see here that God hides the truth from certain people. And by hiding the truth, that's not saying that they don't know the truth, but rather that they don't understand and they don't respond. Their, their response to the truth is impeded somehow. I, I, I couldn't tell you ex- exactly what that looks like, but it's impeded somehow. And this might sound familiar because Paul speaks of something like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says this, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. 
But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And so here in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul is talking about how Satan blinds the eyes of unbelievers. And God the Father is completely sovereign. He's even sovereign over the wicked acts of the wicked. Just as he was sovereign over the most wicked event in history, when they crucified the Son of God, God was sovereign over that and worked it for one of the greatest things, the salvation of the lost, the salvation of his people. And I'm sure you know people like this. Maybe it's friends, maybe it's a family member, where they, you've told the truth to them, they know the truth, but for whatever reason, it just doesn't connect. There's literally, it seems like there's a veil. They just, it, does not, it does not connect. So God hides these things from some people, but he also reveals. He does the opposite. He reveals the truth to others. If you recall back in Luke 9, when, uh, when again, when Peter confesses Jesus as Christ, Matthew adds, adds that Jesus responds back to, to Simon right away. He says this, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this. The same thing. We see this again in John 6, 44. Uh, Jesus says, No one can come to, the, to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. And so God hides this truth of salvation from some and reveals it to others. And specifically, the contrast, the other contrast we see here, he hides it from the wise and understanding, but he reveals it to little children. Now, I do not have the time, and I was really struggling because I really wanted to read this, but I know someone would get upset. But please, take time when you have time to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19 through chapter 2, verse 16. Because Paul, I'm going to say that again, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19 through chapter 2, verse 16. Because Paul makes pretty much the same contrast that Jesus does here. He makes that in 1 Corinthians and he expands on this. He talks about why God has chosen the weak and the foolish as opposed to the wise, the strong, and the noble. The same contrast Jesus does here. And it's for the same reason that God has chosen to not use the wisdom of the world, but to use the wisdom of God to bring about salvation. And that reason, what is that reason? Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the reason is so that no one can boast. So that no one can boast. It is all of God's doing. You cannot boast because it's all of God's grace. And he says also, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That is why he does not, he hides these things from the wise understanding, but he reveals it to little children. And does this not remind you to maybe a couple of verses you may have memorized? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, where Paul says, For by grace... You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. 
No one can boast. And isn't that glorious? You can't boast. I can't boast. What, what do I have that God hasn't given me? What do you have that God hasn't given you? Your salvation, what, what, what is it that you added to it? The only thing that you added was your sin. That's the only thing I added was my sin and my neediness. And so God hides the saving truth from the wise and the understanding and reveals uh, the saving truth to little children. And we saw this, this picture of little children back at the end of Luke 9 where Jesus uses it for the same thing and it refers to believers. He's specifically referring to infants, but he uses it as a picture for believers. Dependent and very needy babies, right? I, 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 very recent in my memory, needy babies. And so we, as believers, we have nothing special about us. Nothing special at all. But God saved us by His grace. And we had nothing to it. And in that reason, we cannot boast at all in ourselves. But as Paul says, we can boast all the more in the cross of Christ. And so this contrast here between the wise and understanding and the little infants is not some kind of contrast before, between uh, the super smart, the educated, and the uneducated, and the, the dumb, if you will. That's not what the contrast is, but rather it's a contrast between able and unable. Those who, who respond, who say, hey, I'm able to do this, I'm so smart, or, or I, you trust in yourself, I'm just going to rely on my intuition, I'm just going to rely on myself, my emotions, whatever. Those are the wise understanding, but you contrast with the little infants, those people, I can't do this. I do not have what it takes. I cannot save myself. All I have is my neediness and my sin. And those are the little infants that God reveals this truth to. And Jesus says, For this was the Father's glorious, I'm sorry, His gracious will. For this is the, the, the Father's gracious will. And we see the same word there used in uh, Ephesians 1. Where Paul says he has predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons of Jesus Christ according to his purpose of his will, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which was set forth in Christ. So it's all according to God's will. God is sovereign. And this, isn't this amazing? We hear through all this, God is sovereign. He is completely in control. And God is gracious. It shines through. It is beautiful. And Jesus is thanking the Father for this. And he continues, verse 22, all things, this is Jesus again uh, thanking the Father, rejoicing in the Spirit. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son, I'm sorry, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so you hear this working theme of God's sovereignty but now Jesus says that same authority has been handed over to him. You can hear this fellowship between the Godhead, the three distinct persons in the one essence, the Godhead, the Trinity. And you notice here the affirmation of the deity of Christ. Jesus is God. He's equating himself with God. He has the same revelation, the same rulership as God. He is God. And he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And this may sound familiar. I've read this a few times so far in Luke. This is Psalm chapter 2. It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession and you shall rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And he asked, Matthew 28, Jesus says, 
All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And from whom? God the Father. And there's perfect knowing, there's perfect being known, there's perfect fellowship and union within the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son. We see that with, with the Holy Spirit, but we, hear, we see it specifically with the Father and Son here. And Jesus adds, don't see this, he adds, and to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus has just been thanking the Father for hiding these truths and revealing to others. And now Jesus says he has the ability to reveal the Father. And so we see this, this again, this equation that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Those who deny it, they're wrong. Jesus is God. To, to summarize that part here, um, Pastor John MacArthur does a great job. He says this, Apart from God's sovereign choice and regenerating power, no one would be saved. There is no capacity in fallen, sinful human beings to see the light of the gospel and believe savingly in their own. Those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, blinded by Satan, 2 Corinthians 4, unable to understand spiritual truth, 1 Corinthians 2, and unable to please God, Romans 8, cannot save themselves. It is all of God's grace. And in this, we can rejoice. We can rejoice. Because although we cannot save ourselves, God has willed it and He has chosen us. We can rejoice because if we, if we did not save ourselves, we cannot unsave ourselves. As I think Pastor John MacArthur has said, or someone else has said, uh, if continuing my salvation was up to me, I would have lost it a long time ago. Can we not say amen? I would have been gone a long time ago if it wasn't for the, God, the grace of God. And we, can enjoy, and we can rejoice that it's all of God's grace because we're saved by God's grace and continue by God's grace. God's favor towards you, Christian, God's loving disposition towards you, Christian, is not dependent on your performance this past week or this morning, but it depends solely on the perfect performance of Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life. And we can rejoice because it is not up to us to save someone. It is not up to us. We obey Christ and we proclaim truth and we pray, but ultimately it's not up to us. That pressure is not on us. It is God who saves. And in that we can rejoice. Now before we finish up the passage, let me say just two things about this, this, this necessity of God's grace. The first one is this. God has ordained the means just as he has ordained the end. What I mean by that is God, he's ordained the end. He's completely sovereign, but he's also ordained the means of bringing out the end. That being said, therefore, we use those means. We pray. We proclaim the truth because it is those that God uses to bring people to him. We pray for God to send out laborers into the harvest. We pray for our lost friends and family members. We proclaim the truth because it's the spirit of the spirit of God uses the word of God to bring about salvation. We've uh, back I think Luke four I listed tons of verses that we see this. But if I can add one more in Ephesians one, Paul writes this: In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God is sovereign over salvation. And he uses these means and calls for us to obey and to pray for the lost and to proclaim the truth, the word of truth. And the second thing, uh, before we, we close here at the last few two verses, many, 
and I'm sure many of us here have been serving faithfully in praying for maybe a lost family member, a lost child, a lost grandchild, a lost a kid, a lost neighbor. And it seems to be not much fruit being bared, bore, where the word is there. And I say it doesn't seem because we can never know what God is doing. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, um, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so if, you're, if you've been faithful and sharing the truth with that, that family member, that lost friend, that neighbor, you've been praying for them, and you just haven't seen anything, do not be discouraged. It is God who gives the growth. Continue to be faithful. Continue. We can trust God. He is gracious. And so we can rejoice in our salvation. We can rejoice that's all of God's grace. And then the last point here, we can rejoice because you are blessed in Christ. Verse 23, Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And so Jesus, he turns to his disciples and Luke says privately. So we just have seen Jesus thanking the Father that he hides it from some and he reveals it to others. And then we see a picture of this where Jesus privately takes his disciples and he shares this just with his disciples, not to everyone. And he declares that they are blessed because they are seeing things that many wanted to see and they're hearing things that many wanted to hear. And so what is it that disciples see and are experiencing that's so special and unique? God in the flesh is there. The very word of God is there. The time of fulfillment is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And the exact way of salvation is becoming manifest. And I phrase it that way, just a side note, because the people in the Old Testament were saved the same exact way that we are saved today. That is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. We look back to the cross and are saved. They looked ahead to the cross and were saved but we look back and we see the specifics. We see the, the, the perfect life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. And they did not see that. They didn't have that, that revelation that revealed to them. As a Christian, you can rejoice because you're blessed. And I hate that word because it's so superficial and overused in our culture. But it's true. You are blessed in Christ. You can have joy. You can take comfort. You're blessed with God's favor forever in Christ. And so this morning, Jesus' command to you and to me, rejoice in your salvation. You cannot bring God's grace to an end. Your name is written in heaven because of Christ. Your forgiveness is not dependent on you, but on Christ. Christ has satisfied God's anger against you. Christ has taken the wrath of God for you. And Christ has given you perfect righteousness through faith so that you receive all the benefits as if you lived a perfect life. And so this morning, let's continue to rejoice in our salvation as we partake of the Lord's Supper together.